You may be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, and we will finish tonight uh, the first chapter of Philippians, finally. Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Philippians 1, 27 to 30. We'll begin tonight by uh, reading our passage. Philippians 1, 27 to 30. The Apostle Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Pray with me. Father, we ask as we open your word that you would open our hearts and illumine our minds so that by your word and the Spirit's work we might understand, that we might believe, and that we might be conformed to the image of your Son. We ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin tonight by asking you first a question. I want you to consider where you're from. And I want you to ask yourself this question. What are some things that are characteristic of someone from your city? What are some things that someone from your hometown should like or do or be really into? If someone is from your city, what should they know about or be about? Think about it for a second. Well, if you're from San Diego, like Aaron, you might have a penchant for French fries and your burritos, or you might actually know how to surf, unlike everyone who thinks that they do. If you're from Sacramento, like Riley, you might eat a little more farm-to-fork than the rest of us. And you might, like Riley, at least pretend to still support the Kings. If you're from San Francisco, like I am, you might uh, appreciate overcast weather and wear shorts and a t-shirt and weather like it is outside. You might know how to parallel park like a beast. Or you might not know how to parallel park at all because you took the bus growing up all the time. If you're from New York, then maybe cheese pizza isn't just cheese pizza. And rats aren't just rats. Wherever you're from, there are distinct affiliations, values, likes and dislikes, even character traits that define your people. Things that are fitting for someone from your hometown to be more than familiar with or to be able to do. These things are 
practically civic duties. There are even requirements of legitimacy for someone from your hometown. Well, here in Philippians 1, especially in verse 27, Paul is saying the very same thing of us as Christians, that as citizens of God's kingdom, we should live in a way that is fitting to our heritage, a heritage of the gospel. And now in most of our translations, in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says something like this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, which that sort of phrase is familiar to us. It's found in various forms throughout the New Testament. And normally when we hear a phrase like that, walk in a manner worthy or conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, uh, we would expect, if you're a Greek scholar, the word peripateo, which is to walk. And you've heard the preacher talk about the Christian's daily walk. It's an everyday thing that he or she should walk this way, should proceed along a path of life this way. Well, here in Philippians 1.27, Paul uses a different word. It's a word that's based on the word polis or city. And he uses a word that literally means conduct yourselves as citizens. Live as those who are citizens or live as those who carry out their duties as citizens. You see, Paul here in Philippians 1.27 is purposefully painting a picture here for the Philippians whose distinct honor it was to be Roman citizens. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony. And so what Paul is saying here is, as Philippian residents who are Roman citizens, but also now who are citizens of God's kingdom, a colony that's not won by sword, but a people bought with the precious blood of Christ, live in a way that reflects your heavenly citizenship. That's what Paul is saying here. It's a concept we'll see again later in chapter 3, verse 20. Look there at Philippians 3, verse 20. Paul writes, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying in chapter 3, verse 20, but also in our text tonight in chapter 1, verse 27, that we should live in a way that is befitting to your heavenly heritage. He's saying that your life should show that you belong to Christ's kingdom. That, Paul says, is a worthy life. Not a life worthy of earning God's favor in some way, but a life that is a worthy display, a fitting display of God's life-changing grace. A life worthy of the gospel is a life in which the gospel affects everything. The gospel must be integral to every priority that you have. The gospel must be integral to every moment and every relationship and every decision that you make. This is what Paul is calling us to, gospel integrity. It's a testimony of the grace of God to a watching world that all of your life is under his rule and reign. Theologian Michael Reeves puts it this way, gospel integrity is the greatest 
and most vital need of the church today. More than moral behavior and orthodox beliefs, this integrity that we need is a complete alignment of our heads, our hearts, and our lives with the truths of the gospel. You see, we live in a day where it is okay to believe the gospel and compartmentalize that and then live however you want. As long as you go to the right events and please the right people, your ticket to heaven is safe and sound if you keep your Christian reputation right. Here in Philippians 1, Paul paints a very different picture. It's one of gospel integrity, one in which what we believe must affect every part of our lives. And that, Paul says, is a worthy life. A worthy life. Tonight, in these few short verses, Paul shows us three characteristics of a worthy life. And it's really Paul's extended answer. It's the beginning of his answer to the question that we answered these past few weeks. And it's this. What does it mean to live out the truth that to live is Christ and to die is gain? What does it mean for Christ to be your all? And Paul has his own answer. An answer that begins here in chapter 1, verse 27, and stretches all the way to chapter 2.18, and then reverberates throughout the rest of the book as well. But before we get to these three characteristics of a worthy life, we need to first, I think, understand better what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Because it is absolutely foundational to our lives as Christians to understand what it means to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Let's do a little work here before we even get to our first point. Turn to Ephesians 4. You need to see uh, another one of these passages that calls us to walk in a manner worthy of uh, the calling by which we have been called. Paul writes in uh, excuse me, Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he goes on, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice that Paul calls them, again, as a prisoner of the Lord, he calls them to live in a manner that is worthy, that is fitting to the calling in the gospel that which they've been called by God. And there's a focus on godly character in this passage. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, and then eager to maintain unity, which we'll see in Philippians as well tonight. Turn to Colossians chapter 1 and see another one of these passages as we seek to understand what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Look at Colossians 1 verse 9, and Paul writes there, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And this is the contents of his prayer. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now notice here in Colossians 1, this walking in a manner worthy of Christ 
there is a strong connection between a growth in knowledge and, and then bearing fruit. You see, to grow and walk in that manner worthy of uh, the calling and manner worthy of Christ, manner worthy of the gospel, is to grow in your knowledge of him, your experience of him, your relationship with him, uh, and then to also bear fruit. You see, our faith, our walk, is not just us here staying on the straight path. It, it has to do with everyone around us toward whom we bear fruit. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2. Just one more. 1 Thessalonians 2 as we seek to understand what it means to walk in a manner worthy. 1 Thessalonians 2 and Paul is describing his ministry to the Thessalonians. Look at verse 11. 1 Thess 2 in verse 11. For you know now like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now notice in 1 Thessalonians, there's a link with this worthy walk to discipleship. This is not an isolated effort like we just talked about, but a community endeavor. And so these three passages, along with our text tonight, and along with others, help us characterize what it means to walk or to conduct yourselves or to live as worthy citizens worthy of the gospel or worthy of your calling or worthy of Christ. It has to do with godly character. It has to do with growth in knowledge. And it has to do with bearing fruit. And it has to do with discipleship and in being in community. Uh, consistently, uh, these calls to a worthy life are in response to gospel truth that Paul writes right before all of these passages. And so we see a pattern that right belief, that truth, results in a life that is fitting to that right belief. I believe God's Word is exhorting us this evening in a very simple way before we even get to our passage that the way we live should be fitting to the gospel we believe. Uh, the way that we talk and the way that we think and the way that we act toward others ought to reflect the very gospel we believe such that we should call our lives worthy lives. Lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And that's what we see tonight. So let's look at three characteristics of a life fitting to the gospel. Uh, let's look at what a worthy display of God's life-changing grace looks like. Those whose lives are worthy of the gospel are first, united in mission. Those whose lives are worthy of the gospel are united in mission. We'll see that in verse 27. Turn back to Philippians 1. In verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. But Paul has shown us so far in chapter 1, by his own example really, what a worthy display of the transforming power of the gospel looks like. And, and now he turns and instructs the Philippians and instructs us as to how to 
build that same sort of life, brick by brick. You see, he's given us the testimonial, the the first person narrative of what that looks like, and now here's the instruction booklet, so to speak. Now Paul has contemplated in this last few verses, verses 18 through 26, the possible outcomes of his Roman imprisonment. And that's why he now says, whether I come to see you or am absent, Philippians, you are to live this kind of worthy life. He's saying, either way, it's worth saying. This kind of worthy life is a life of worship and obedience to God, not to me, Philippians. So whether I come to you or I'm away from you, live in this way. GOC, isn't our obedience to God so many times predicated on somebody, on a leader or leaders? Maybe your small group leader or your pastor or your boyfriend or your girlfriend. And indeed, the Lord uses people to communicate truth and people in our lives to work as accountability for us. But our obedience is to the Lord and Paul is subtly pointing this out here and really that's just for free look at the main idea of what paul is saying here so whether i come look at verse 27 so whether i come and see you or i'm absent i may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit you see the fundamental stance of a life that is worthy of the gospel is one of unity of standing firm in one spirit. The picture here is an athlete in a ready stance. Knees bent on the balls of his feet, ready for action or impact. Perhaps this is a picture, though, of a soldier on the battlefield, feet firmly planted on the ground, ready to stand his ground, bracing for contact with the enemy. Either way, the idea here is a life that is poised and ready for obedience to the Lord. Flip back just a page, look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. The same idea is here. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. This standing firm in Philippians 1, 27 is, Paul says, to be in one spirit. I think it is more accurate to understand this one spirit as a reference to the Holy Spirit, not a human spirit of some kind, of some spirit of unity, but it's unity in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. That is to say, a capital S here. Uh, There are a few reasons why I think that this is a more accurate understanding, but let me just give you two reasons. One is the context of Philippians 2, uh, verse 1, which is a clear reference to the Holy Spirit. He says there, look, uh, Paul writes, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and he goes on, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. That's our text next week. Uh, But that is a clear reference to the Holy Spirit. And so uh, that, along with this, the theological framework in the New Testament for the Spirit is consistently a basis 
for unity between believers. And so over and over we see in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit is a a basis, uh, grounds for believers to to be united. Uh, Consider just one verse that shows us this. Ephesians 4, verse 3. You don't need to turn there. Just listen to this. Uh, Paul says that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, in the bond of peace. And he goes on to say, famously, there is one body and one Spirit. And he goes on. And so as Paul is calling the Philippians to stand firm, it is to stand firm in the one Spirit. The one Spirit who dwells in our hearts. The Spirit who is our helper. Uh, The Spirit who uh, we have been adopted by God in. Uh, The Spirit who helps us in our weakness. Uh, The very Spirit who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We all together are to stand firm in the Spirit. Now notice in verse 27, we aren't called to stand firm and stand in unity just for standing firm or standing in unity's sake. Look again at verse 27, how this standing firm leads to action. That I might hear of you, that you are standing firm in one Spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You see, we are not only to stand firm in the unity of the Spirit, we ought also, Grace on Campus, together to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul's life mission, he has shown us, is to honor Christ, to know Him and to make Him known. Such that even when faced with hypocritical animosity, remember verse 18, uh, he found joy still in loving and serving his Savior. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. What then only then in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And so Paul's life was to, uh, life mission was to honor Christ. And so now Paul is saying the same thing. He's giving the same simple charge to the Philippian church and to us that to live is to know Christ and to make him known. And Paul is saying here in verse 27 that we ought to endeavor in this knowing and making him known in the only way that is fitting to gospel grace and peace. We are to stand firm and to strive in this together, side by side. This word strive is a fighting or a struggling alongside. Again, perhaps a battlefield image. This is significant effort uh, together in gospel progress. Uh, Paul says we must strive, uh, struggle, fight, toil with one mind. Again, this idea of unity. Now, this is reminiscent of 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12, this picture of the body of Christ or perhaps uh, shades of Colossians 1 as well in Paul's thinking where Christ is the head of the church and we are the members of the body and we are to be working together with the same mind of Christ 
for the sake of the gospel. And that's our purpose in all this. Look at the end of verse 27. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This isn't unity for unity's sake. This isn't standing firm for just standing firm and not being shaken. Uh, This is standing firm, striving together for the sake of the gospel. Now, is this talking about our faith? Or is this evangelistic? Is this talking about others' faith that we must reach? Is this in-reach or outreach? Yes. Both. I believe that this is both your faith and the faith of those around you and the faith of those who don't know yet know Christ. Our striving together is for the progress of this whole endeavor of faith in Christ that every tribe and tongue and nation would have faith in Christ and would grow in that faith. We've looked at this verse three weeks in a row now, but it's so crucial and clear for us to look at this. Turn to Colossians 1. We need to look look again at Colossians 1, 28, because this is an encapsulation of what Paul has been trying to tell us and now even more clearly is saying that we must commit our lives to doing this. Colossians 1, 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then listen to verse 29 uh, in light of Philippians 1.27. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. In a world of celebrity pastors and influencer Christians, We are so prone to thinking that the gospel goes forth on this campus or in society via gospel all-stars. That it's not us, but that God will raise up someone else. That that one person in our class who will be most famous or richest and can give the most admissions. Or maybe the one guy who's wanting to go to seminary. And that makes us feel better somehow. Or, Or maybe you are that one person who you think all of this rides on you that everything in your class or everything in grace on campus in regards to evangelism uh, weighs on you and it's on your shoulders well paul in philippians 1 has a word for us tonight no matter what side of the fence you're on we must stand firm together united in mission and strive toil such that our message is Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim. We must be united in mission for the faith of the gospel. I don't know when the last time it is that you were in a paddle boat or a pedal boat. If you're from San Francisco, uh, you know about pedal boats at Stow Lake. But if you've rowed a boat or if you've pedaled a boat with somebody. The last time I did it, it was with my wife, and we had two of our kids sitting in the back of this pedal boat. So you're riding it kind of like a bicycle. 
And when you ride or you row, you need both people to be rowing or pedaling together. Well, guess who wasn't pedaling so well when my wife and I rode the pedal boat? Me. Got tired. Take a break. Just taking a break. Uh, but when you row a boat or when you pedal a boat, you need both or all people in that boat to be striving or toiling or taking breaks too at the same time doing this thing together. That's like our worthy life. You see, a life that is a worthy display of the gospel is not bent on just doing its own thing on its own timeline, but it's instead focused in on God's mission striving together with others around for gospel progress in every station, with every fiber of its being, seeking to honor Christ. And here we see, unified in that mission, with others together. So together, Grace on Campus, let's stand firm and strive for the faith of the gospel, hand to the plow, trusting that God will work through us. Now there's a second characteristic of a life fitting to the gospel, and we see it in verse 28. That those who live lives worthy of the gospel are not only united in mission, but also courageous in witness. Courageous in witness. Paul shows us here that this life of striving together for the faith of the gospel means that we will face opposition. And so we are to be courageous in our witness. Look at verse 28. That I might hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Now we know Paul himself had faced opposition, even in Philippi. If you think back to our very first uh, time together in the book of Philippians, we looked at Acts 16, when Paul first met these believers at Philippi. And after the Lord opened Lydia's heart and that the hearts of the initial group of believers at that riverbank, Paul and Silas and the other disciples are thrown into prison for casting out a demon from a slave girl. And then other events happen, and one giant earthquake later, the Philippian jailer and his household are converted, and yet the magistrates and police still ask them to leave the city. And so as Paul pens this letter to the Philippians, this is the origin story of his gospel partnership with these believers that's in his mind as he writes. And as they read, this is at the forefront of their minds as they hear that Paul is again in prison. And as they, the Philippians, also face opposition for their faith and for their witness for Christ. Well, for Paul, Philippi was just one stop along the way on 
one of Paul's missionary journeys. You see, the apostle to the Gentiles, the bearer of the good news of grace and peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul was opposed over and over and over again throughout his ministry by Judaizers, by false teachers, by criticizers, by evil men in the church, by evil men outside the church, and here now, the Roman establishment and Caesar himself opposing Paul. Paul, formerly the persecutor of Christians, and now persecuted and imprisoned and opposed and all for the sake of Christ. We could go back to 2 Corinthians 11 again and look at the catalog of opposition and hardship of the Apostle Paul. And still yet, even here he says that because to live is Christ and to die is gain, let us not be frightened in anything. Let us not be frightened in anything. Let us not be frightened in any opposition we have as we live this worthy life before a watching world and they criticize us. Let us not be frightened in anything. When they mock us, let us not be frightened in anything. When they hold it over us, that they have seemingly more success than we do because we held to our integrity, let us not be frightened in anything. Persecuted, imprisoned, opposed. Paul, that was him. And for us, we can hardly fathom in our world our world of amendments and rights and provisions, what it would be to suffer unjustly at the hands of unrighteous men. I mean, we've got centers for law and justice. Uh, God bless Jay Sekulow. Grateful for him. He helps Christians all over the place. But we don't understand firsthand what it would be like to suffer for our faith. But it seems as if it's only a matter of time and maybe situation before we face opposition as Christians. Persecution is likely coming and likely in our lifetime in an intense way. Just look at the news. Uh, But it's not just the news that tell us that. The scriptures tell us that it will come, that persecution will come for those who are faithful. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Or Jesus on the ser- at the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or Paul in 2 Timothy 3, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so the Bible shows us very clearly that persecution will come, opposition will come, and, and Paul's response in Philippians 1.28 is this, let us not be frightened in anything. That's the response in the face of persecution that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's courage in witness. It's gospel-driven boldness. It's courage to live out a witness for Christ 
even despite the opposition. It's courage to do the right thing. It's courage to tell the truth. It's courage to be meek and humble ambassadors for our Savior. It's courage to perhaps even suffer for the sake of His name. Because He suffered even unto death for our salvation. This phrase, not frightened, is a word picture as well. It's a picture of a horse, again, maybe in battle, but that horse not being frightened or not being skittish in battle. With the clamor and the clashing of swords around this horse, it is not rattled, it's not frightened. It doesn't freak out. Now, we don't have much interaction with horses unless you grew up riding horses. But I bet we know this same feeling. This past Wednesday at 2 in the morning, there was an earthquake, 4.2, 10 miles south of Malibu in the middle of the ocean, which the middle of the ocean makes it sound super lame, but some of you know it wasn't super lame. It woke you up. Some of you now are just realizing that was an earthquake. Yes, it was an earthquake. Now at 2 a.m., some of you are hitting your second wind, studying, or studying. But us normal people and us old people are sleeping at 2 in the morning. And when an earthquake like that happens, it wakes you up and it spooks you. Now as a citizen of the fine state of California, perhaps after a number of these, even in the middle of the night, you might wake up, but then you sort of just roll over, thinking, well, <laughs> we're in California, it's just an earthquake. You even maybe begin to expect earthquakes. Uh, maybe you have the MyQuake app that the government put out, and you can anticipate earthquakes if you're nerdy like that. It's sort of the inevitable here, and uh, you come to expect shaking, and then it stops. And then, okay, here comes another tremor probably in the next five, four, and then it goes. You know what to expect. And that's a picture, sort of, of what Paul is saying. You are here in this world as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and so you should expect opposition. You should not be frightened by opposition when it comes. Uh, knowing the contrary nature of the world and this gospel that you know and believe and have, has become dear to you, uh, do not be frightened then because you know the opposition that is coming. Uh, don't be frightened in anything. Have courage. Uh, Paul is saying in a sense, roll over in your sleep and continue your witness for Christ. That sort of steadfastness in witness is part of a life that is a worthy display of the steadfast love of God. And how is it that we can have this kind of courage? What is the basis? Do we just come up with it? No, Paul tells us in the rest of verse 28. Look there. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Paul's reasoning is simple. The basis of our courage is the message of the gospel itself. Uh, the truth of the gospel and what it means for me 
and for you in eternity is why we can have courage as we live worthy of this gospel. Uh, This is why we can have courage because we know that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. We can have courage because that despite your and my disobedience to the very God who created us, uh, by the grace of God, there is opportunity for all to turn from sin and by faith receive the forgiveness found in Jesus, not on the merit of our works, but on His righteousness alone. We can have courage because we know that the faithful God will complete the work that He began in us. We can have courage because He will indeed bring to glory those whom He has called and justified. And all that accomplished by a faithful God in whom we can be ever sure. Paul says here in Philippians 1, 28, and that from God. And that from God. We have a sure and secure gospel. Uh, We have faith in that. And that gospel, that salvation, it's from God who is ever sure, ever faithful from age to age. You see, from salvation to suffering to to glory, we are in the hand of a sovereign, all-wise, all-powerful, good God. And so that is why we don't have to be frightened in anything. The sobering reality of what we believe as Christians is that those who don't place their faith in Christ will be consigned to eternal hell. Those who don't place their faith in Christ will be separated from God forever because in His presence there cannot be sin. 2 Thessalonians 1 puts it this way. Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. A sobering reality for us who are saved. And yet we believe, we have faith in this gospel that for as terribly sinful as we are, as deserving as each of us is of eternal destruction, as a just punishment for our sin, the free gift of salvation is available to anyone who would believe. Grace and mercy and peace and forgiveness freely given by God through the work of Jesus on the cross. This is what we believe, and this is what we are sure of, and this is why, in the face of opposition, as we live the Christian life, we can be frightened by nothing. We can face opposition and stand firm, striving together, because we believe in a a gospel and in a God who is sure. Now, if you don't know this Jesus, if you don't know the grace and the mercy and peace of God, I invite you tonight even to talk to somebody around you. Come up and talk to me. And we want to share with you this gospel, this good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. 
And all of us deserve his punishment, but he has given us this confidence in uh, Christ who lived a perfect life of obedience to his Father, but then died a death and took our sin and, and was raised from death to life after three days to have victory over sin and death. And so on the merit of Christ and Christ alone, we can have life again. That is the gospel we are sure of. Uh, That is the message that we have believed and that we know is true. And so when Paul says here, our courage is a sign to those who oppose us, that when despite their opposition, we are bold, it is a testimony to those who oppose us that what we believe is true. Our courage in the face of somebody's opposition may be the sign that points our spiritual enemies to Christ. And so the courage we are called to isn't brash. This isn't cocky boldness. This isn't bravado. In the face of opposition and ridicule and mocking, the courage we are called to in this passage is a quiet Resting confidence in the very efficacy of the message that we preach. The surety of our salvation and the sobering reality of those who oppose Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.18 makes sense of this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Romans 1 calls it the power of God unto salvation. You see, the word of the cross is fuel for our courage in two ways. First, in the reality of God's grace in your life, if you know Christ. It's comfort. We've talked about this already. When the earthquake comes, it's the pillow on which you rest your head. But secondly, the word of, the, word of the cross is, the gospel is fuel for our courage in that as the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, it is fuel for us to, like Paul, toil and strive together for the faith of the gospel that more may know the word of the cross, not as folly, but as the power of God into salvation. It motivates us that to see people opposing the very precious message that we believe, we want more to believe like we do, to be saved from their sin. To be saved from hell. And to live with Christ in eternity. That to also believe to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's the courageous witness of a life worthy of the gospel. Finally, in verses 29 and 30, we see that those who live a life fitting to the gospel are joyful in suffering. Joyful in suffering. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul points out in these verses that the opposition he has faced, and the opposition that the Philippians are currently facing in this book, and the opposition that you and I face now, as we live out our witness, is all the same. And it it is all the same conflict. It is all the same opposition. And it is all 
in the sovereign hand of God. The kind of conflict he refers to here is the kind of conflict we see in Ephesians 6. Again, flip back just one page and look at Ephesians 6, but now the verse before, verse 12. Paul writes there, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, You see, the tangible, visible opposition that we experience in this life is just the tip of the iceberg above the water for the spiritual warfare that is the iceberg beneath the surface. As we live for Christ in a world hostile to the truth, we all share in the same suffering. And so when you are posed in lab or when your floor mates laugh at you for waking up so early to go to church or when your friends abandon you and the friend group is gone because you believe in Jesus and they don't, you are not alone in your suffering. Uh, Each of us, if we live faithful lives, faithful to the witness of Christ, we will all face this same suffering. 1 Peter 4 shows us also more of that. Turn to 1 Peter 4 because you need to see this. 1 Peter 4 verse 13. The Apostle Peter says this, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. You see, Peter calls this suffering that we face as Christians for the sake of the Gospel, he calls it sharing in Christ's sufferings. Similar to Paul in our passage, look at the response Peter calls us to in 1 Peter 4.13. He says to rejoice, do not be surprised, but instead rejoice, expect it, and rejoice because it is your Savior's sufferings that you are sharing in, Peter is saying. And rejoice that beyond the sufferings of this earth, His glory will be revealed. And we see the same thing in Acts 5 as the apostles begin to preach the gospel. Look there really quick, Acts 5. The apostles begin to preach the gospel in the synagogue and they face the opposition of the Jewish establishment. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And then drop down to verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. What is Peter's response to suffering for the sake of Christ? And what is the apostles' response in Acts? And what is Paul's response in Philippians? Rejoicing. Rejoicing to be counted faithful and worthy to suffer for his name. It is joy for the Christian. It is joy to suffer for his name and to know that Christ is honored in our courageous witness. In fact, turn back to Philippians. 
Look at verse 29. Paul says, it has been granted to you. This word granted is charizomai, and it means graciously, graciously given or freely given. Charis is the root. Grace. It's the same word we might associate with the gift of grace in salvation, and rightly so. But you see, what Paul is saying here in verse 29 is that it is a gift of grace that not only has God enlivened your soul to believe in him, it is also a gift of grace that God has deemed you worthy, faithful, to suffer for Christ's sake. That it is a gift of grace that you and I, Christian, can be an instrument in God's hand for his glorious gospel to go forth to be a light in the darkness, to be a witness and a trophy of God's grace in the gospel before a watching world. And we might very well, Paul is saying, face suffering, opposition for it. But we find comfort in the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And our Savior says this, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Grace on campus, when we face the opposition and the likely sufferings as ambassadors for Christ in a world that despises him, we can count it of grace and rejoice because we are engaged in the same sufferings as all of the faithful saints who have gone before us. And we are engaged in the same sufferings as even our Lord Jesus Christ as as he faced en route to the cross of Calvary. And so we take on Paul's heart in Philippians 1.18 that if the gospel is proclaimed and even an ounce of kingdom progress is made, we rejoice. Whether through the ministry of others around us with whom we stand firm, striving together for this gospel, or by God's grace in our own lives, and maybe even through suffering, we rejoice in that Christ would be honored. That is our prayer, that we would be counted good and faithful servants, that our lives would be counted worthy of the gospel of Christ, a worthy life. The process to become a U.S. citizen can be somewhat drawn out. It's a daunting process between all the forms and the fees and the visits to the government office, there is an infamous test. 100 questions about civics and history. You need to know, among 97 other things, who was president during the Civil War. Google it later which wars America fought in the 1800s, Google it later, and how long a senator's term is. But at the end of it, you could know these things and 
97 other things, and you would still not, in actuality, be a citizen of our fair country until you take an oath, an oath of allegiance and an oath of action. You see, citizenship, whether it's with the U.S. of A. or citizenship in the kingdom of God, citizenship isn't just knowledge. It isn't even just an ID card or a rubber stamp process. It's not just praying a prayer. It's not just knowing who the 14th president is or the minor prophets in order. Citizenship captured in the oath is allegiance and action. Allegiance to the U.S. of A. or allegiance to God and His Son Jesus and the work of the Spirit. And it's a commitment also to action as a citizen. Citizenship in God's kingdom as we have seen and as we will continue to see in our study of Philippians is no different. Citizenship is not just knowledge of facts. It's the allegiance that is faith in Christ and the resulting life that is a worthy display of the gospel of Christ. A worthy life that is united in mission, courageous in witness, and joyful in suffering. Let's pray to that end. Father, thank you for your word. It's a challenge to our hearts because uh, we may not have faced opposition quite yet, but we will. It's shown to us in your word. But Lord, we are not frightened in anything. And we say that with some fear and trepidation potentially in our hearts, but we are not frightened in anything because we have Christ. And your sovereign hand will guide us and your spirit will work in the situations and conversations that we have as we seek to live out this witness for our Savior. But Father, we ask even tonight that in the vein of this passage that you would embolden many in this room to be witnesses for the Savior in maybe ways that we have not yet. That on this campus, Father, the gospel would go forth in a way that is Uh, unlike years past, that, Father, many would come to know Jesus because of the faithful witness in this room. So, Father, be kind to us and strengthen us to be bold for uh, Christ and help us rejoice in suffering and opposition that we might face. And, Father, most of all, help us to look to you because our salvation, it's from you. We're reminded in this passage. So Father, as we sing now and respond uh, in worship, help us, O God, to commit our lives and our very efforts and our moments day by day to striving together with one mind for the faith of the gospel. So we commit this time to you even now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.